one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 514 for the week of Monday, May 6th, 2013. We apologize for having to skip a week, but we did have some technical difficulties with our previous time recording, but we are back, and joining us once again this time is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Let's kick the tires and light the fires, Sawyer. Yes, indeed, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I wonder if since people in the South say y'all as a, a sh- contraction for you all, if I could say hall for hi all, <laughs> then again, maybe I should just say hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, d- I, I guess we can make it a thing, and then when it becomes popular, we know who coined it. There you go. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to hold my breath on that one. <laughs> anyway, so... Howdy to all, and let's get started. And our first story is going back to pretty much what our entire episode was about last time. If you recall, that was about the company Orbital Sciences, which successfully launched their rocket, their Antares rocket, on its first ever flight. And its next flight was scheduled for towards about the end of June, early July 2013, and that was to be a demonstration mission, the first flight with the Cygnus capsule on top, as well as actually coming near the International Space Station, but not an actual mission to it. However, it doesn't seem like it's going to be happening that soon, because the company has decided that it wants to swap out one of the two main engines that were slated to launch on that next launch. They are swapping out the AJ-26 engines, which I know Gene can fill us in a little bit more on in a few moments, but they'll be switching out those, and it will add another three to four weeks to the launch time, pushing it to August. However, in that same launch window is a Japanese resupply vehicle that is scheduled to go, HTV, and they were going to have to decide whether it will be an orbital launch or a Japanese cargo launch. And I have a feeling we know what the answer is going to be. So at this point, it looks like Orbital's next mission attempt may be in September. But this says nothing about their April 21st flight, which went well, right? Yeah, the, the upshot of the whole thing there, Sawyer, uh, according to, and I'm looking at a article here from nasaspaceflight.com dated today, and I'm going to quote uh, Orbital's uh, program manager for Antares, Mike Pinkston here. Uh, he says, quote, Comprehensive post-flight analysis is an absolutely critical step to understanding exactly how the launch vehicle is performed and whether there are any other necessary adjustments you know, to, to make here. And he says, quote, Having intensively reviewed the data for, for a couple of weeks, our conclusion was that the inaugural flight of Antares 
was as good as it looked. And uh, from my vantage point, it did look you know rather exceptional. So the the upshot on this whole thing is that Antares performed like a champ. Um, so again, this is great news for for the United States and great news for uh, for the International Space Station because now, really, I think we've got a capability to uh, to get cargo uh, up to the ISS from two sources and not just one. Not only uh, two sources, uh, SpaceX and now Orbital, but also uh, from two different launch facilities. Uh, one, of course, being uh, the Kennedy Space Center, and now uh, from uh, uh, from Wallops Island. So uh, this is a big, big plus uh, for uh, for the country, I think. Also for the for the economy too. Again, this is this is more jobs, more you know, more high tech uh, type stuff going on. Um, sorry, you mentioned the engines uh, on here. Uh, the uh, the AJ twenty six, which is uh, sort of souped up by a company called Aerojet. To kind of sort of give you a little bit of a rundown, these engines really began life as uh, the NK-33s. The NK-33s were a Soviet design launched or or set up, should I say, for the the N-1, uh, which was essentially the Soviet Union's entry uh, for their moon rocket. Uh, however, they did not have the the same performance as the uh, as as the United States F one engines. However, there's about maybe uh, after uh, the 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 Russian or the Soviets decided to say, well, that's enough of that. Uh, there were about uh, 150 of these things that kind of survived, and uh, uh, around uh, the mid 1990s or so, uh, Russia Russia sold about 36 of these things to a company called Aerojet. They went ahead, took these things, and kind of did what your shade tree mechanic does. Uh, kind of souped it up uh, to go ahead and, and do other things and, and so on. I mean, the, the original design didn't allow for the engine to be gimbaled, for instance. This thing can be. Uh, that's, that, that, that's just one, one part of uh, what, what they've done. But they've also sort of modernized the engine and so on into a, a fairly reliable uh, uh, rocket engine. So... Propellants are uh, you know, uses just um, your average liquid oxygen RP1. It's a rather uh, hefty hefty engine here. It's about uh, its overall length is about 148 inches. And at any rate, it's uh, it's been fairly reliable, and which is one of the reasons why uh, Orbital decided to to use it for Antares. Uh, uh, the 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 downside of this, if there is one, uh, is that there's a finite supply of these engines. So uh, you're kind of, you know, kind of sort of trying to figure out what do you do next after this supply is exhausted. I talked with some of the uh, the orbital execs over there, and they are saying, well, it would be great to have that problem. It meant that our flight rate was good and so on. But I, I just asked, you know, what would it take to go ahead and develop an engine? comparable to this and I believe uh, I talked with a gentleman by the name of Kurt Eberly uh, over at Orbital and he said something to the effect that it would cost about somewhere in between of about 600 million dollars just to go ahead and do the research for developing an engine like this so the problem is we don't have an engine of, of this capability here in the US and uh, it is a bit of a security problem, I, I, would, I would figure, too, because uh, I believe the 
engine is in other boosters and so on. And I believe the U.S. military launches some of this using those engines. So uh, it, it can end up being a security problem, too. So, so it's a sort of a red flag, if you will. Uh, we need to go ahead and get uh, uh, research going on, on a new engine. But in this, this day of austerity, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, uh, sorry, I believe the, the reason given uh, is they want to investigate a seal on uh, on the existing AJ26 engine that's sitting in the in the booster now. Yeah, exactly. According to Orbital's website, it says exactly as you mentioned that they want to check whether a seal is working properly or not on one of the engines. So they're doing their due diligence. They're making sure that uh, uh, they're not going to have any problems with with the engine aloft and so on. So I'll, you know, like, again, I'll 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 give them a tip of a hat there. I mean, yeah, we know that this is sort of a development program. Yeah, there's going to be delays here, and I think everybody around the table knows that. I mean, SpaceX, too, had its, had its growing pains and so on. Um, so, you know, uh, again, they're, they're doing their due, due diligence, and, and uh, it'll be good to go ahead, and, however, and see, uh, see Cygnus finally uh, take flight. So uh, it, it will be interesting to see how Cygnus performs and, uh, and so on. But if, if everything goes the way I think they're going to go, I think uh, we're going to have two at, uh, by the end of September, I think we can, we'll be able to safely declare that uh, we have two viable cargo vehicles for the International Space Station, and that's a good thing. Exactly, and again, as we mentioned last time, one of the big differences between the two is that Cygnus is designed to burn up in the atmosphere, whereas SpaceX's Dragon is meant to be returned and reused. But one thing I just wanted to throw in that I just learned, uh, and this is from an article in Spaceflight Now, we were talking about how the HTV is a concern, which is scheduled for launch August 4th as of right now. But one thing I did know is that the Cygnus and the HTV both use Japan's proximity communication system to transmit and receive commands and data and information from the station. Surprise. Um, so, uh, yeah, and that also could kind of sort of maybe complicate things a little bit for for HTV being, being there as well. But once HTV is attached, don't worry about it. Uh, so... Uh, we'll, we'll just have to see what uh, what transpires between now and September. All right, so we'll keep an eye on Orbital and see if they do launch in September like expected. And while we're sticking with commercial news, just an update that also SpaceX, while we're talking about the two COTS program members, is also scheduled for their next launch in November of 2013. So we've got some time. So going from commercial spaceflight to, well, I guess the state of NASA affairs, Gene? Yeah, it looks like again, and as I, I hate to say this, but uh, I, I hate it when I'm right about these things. Uh, there was a little bit of a, a I, I guess, I, I don't want to say bombshell, uh, but I guess I'm going to go ahead and say that anyway. Um, this week with uh, negotiating a new contract uh, with our friends over in Russia, to deliver uh, U.S. crew to the International Space Station. Um, as things turned out, we had to renegotiate a new contract, basically giving us now we are going to be paying essentially $70 million a seat to Roscosmos to deliver U.S. astronauts to the International Space Station, uh, a facility that, well, we here in the United States were instrumental in building. Um, that's kind of embarrassing. It also looks like, and I'm reading here from a blog post dated April 30th 
on the NASA blog's website uh, that uh, none other than uh, NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden wrote, basically saying that, quote, because the funding for the president's plan has been significantly reduced, we will now not be able to support American launches to the International Space Station until 2017. Even this delayed availability will be in question if Congress does not fully support the president's fiscal year 2014 request for our commercial crew program, forcing us once again to extend a contract with the Russians. Now, further delays in our commercial crew program and its impact on human spaceflight are unacceptable. That's why we need the full $821 million the president has requested in in next year's budget to keep us on track to meet our 2017 deadline and bring these launches back to the United States, close quote. Now, Bolden later on said in an interview that was done for Bloomberg government, he's not going to be able to deliver on commercial crew if we don't get the $820 million. Now, if that happens, he said NASA is going to have to go back through the State Department and renegotiate a contract with Roscosmos if we don't hit that 2017 deadline. And, you know, Lord knows what that's going to be, uh, how much the Roscosmos is going to ask. Because it's, it's going to, according to uh, uh, Administrator Bolden, he said it's going to signal to the, to the Russians that we don't want to rely on American industry. And uh, we don't want to have our ability, our own ability, to get crews into to, to the ISS. I kind of warned about that earlier on in this whole whole thing. Um, I guess it was last year that right at, back then when it was you know sixty three million dollars a seat, um, it's going to be caveat emptor. Uh, you know, it's 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 essentially because we don't have our own way to get into uh, into low Earth orbit. I mean, this past weekend on May 5th, there was a bit of an anniversary of sorts. That anniversary was Alan Shepard's 15-minute uh, pop gun flight. Uh, that got us onto the board. It got us into space. We can't right now duplicate that if we wanted to. And that's embarrassing. Um, and uh, I, I think, quite frankly, the U.S. taxpayer deserves better. It deserves the ability to get to an asset, the International Space Station, uh, on demand, rather than having to go ahead and hitch a ride with somebody else, and uh, that was one of the things that uh, Bolden was trying to stress, uh, both uh, in the Bloomberg interview, and he also said the same thing today at uh, the Explore Mars conference uh, here in New York, and uh, he had a lot to say about uh, the asteroid program too. And this is something as well. I was kind of kind of wondering about because uh, I asked. Um, Lori Garver, the same question about two weeks ago at the Antares launch, because I also had the same problem kind of putting two and two together with, um, with have, going out to an asteroid and then going to Mars. And a lot of other people, especially folks in Congress, can't really put two and two together either with that. Um, in fact, uh, during our hiatus uh, uh, Administrator Bolden was in front of Congress basically saying that this asteroid mission is the best we can do with the current resources that we have. And uh, members, certain members were pulsing him about a return to the moon mission. He said, I need money to do that. Now, he, during his, his discussion today in New York, uh, Bolden kind of went off script for a little bit. 
And he said, you know, I want to go ahead and put this into some sort of perspective because he said he's been seeing a lot of this and he really, really wants to go ahead and basically nip this in the bud right now. He said, moon, Mars, asteroid. It's not an either or. In his opinion, humans will return to the moon. There's no question in his mind, he said. However, he said that the United States has already demonstrated that we know how to get to the moon. However, there, there are technological gaps, he said, in our abilities to go ahead and get to Mars. And he felt that every single moment and every dollar of our resources have got to be directed at gaining that knowledge, at gaining access to those technologies that are going to enable us to get beyond the moon. Again, capturing an asteroid just as a precursor to going to Mars, a lot of people think it's a detour. And uh, I'm, I'm going to throw that out to you guys. What do you think? Is, is, do you guys really think that, that, that the asteroid capture mission is a detour? Or do you think possibly what uh, Administrator Bolden was saying, that it would give us the, uh, the deep space uh, edge that we, that we need to go ahead and learn? Uh, you know, not only just uh, from a technological standpoint, but also, I guess, from a communication standpoint, can our, can our comm deal with crews that far out? So I'm going to throw this to the floor. What do you guys think? Not going to like it. I think the next <laughs> 10 years ought to be spent learning how to work and live in low Earth orbit. There's plenty of things to do there. I'm not even going to start on that list. I think that the moon and Mars and asteroids and all that stuff is fine, and it's good to plan for the future, but I would say the next decade ought to be spent a little closer to home. Not for any reason other than this is where we can still learn a lot without, uh, without, without spending a fortune that nobody has. Well, in some ways, Mark, uh, I think Administrator Bolden did touch on that, that the ISS is sort of preparing us to, to go deeper and, and, and further into space. Uh, but uh, General Bolden here was saying that, uh, again, Mars should be our objective. I mean, the moon's nice, but we can't swing Mars right now. We can't swing both the moon and, and Mars right now. I'd really love to hear what you guys think yeah. out there that, that are listening to us here, here tonight and, and trying to wonder, uh, you know, what do you think that we should be doing? Is, is, is Mars the way to go? Is, is an asteroid a detour? What do you guys think? So uh, how about uh, shooting us an email and letting us know? Sawyer, uh, why don't you go ahead and let folks know how to do that? You bet. If you want to contact us, and we'd love to have a segment on the next show with your thoughts on this, so please send them in to us. You can send it as a regular old typed up message or as an mp3 file we don't really have too much of a maximum length on it you can send it to mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com you can also tweet it to us at talking space or post it on our facebook wall which is facebook.com slash talking space and we'd love to hear from you and i should actually just add along those lines there was actually someone who just sent us a note of buzz aldrin who's releasing a new book about Mars called Mission to Mars, My Vision for Space Exploration, which comes out on May 7th. So uh, thank you to Leonard David for sending that in to us. Now, we've been keeping you waiting long enough. It was only going to be a week's long wait, but thanks to technology errors, it's been two weeks that we left you with a cliffhanger about Mark. And uh, Mark, I can't wait any longer. Can you please tell us what that story was that you've been saving up for the last couple weeks? Uh, This wouldn't be my little... uh... And never was said a discouraging word type comment about commercial spaceflight. 
That might have been it. Uh, well, let me dig into this. This will take a minute to lay the foundation to give you an idea where this came from and hopefully to entice you to check this out yourself. My source is a panel discussion titled The Future of U.S. Space Policy. And this was done at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is an independent, nonpartisan membership organization. They cover a lot of issues that concern the U.S., both home and around the world, and at this point, of course, in, in space. The participants, the presider was James Fallows. He's a correspondent with The Atlantic. And the two speakers that you primarily hear on this is Scott Pace. He is a professor at, by the Practice of International Affairs, the director of the Space Policy Institute. Yeah, he attended uh, George Wa or part of George Washington University. He is also a longtime veteran of NASA and various incarnations there doing international relations. The second speaker is former Congressman Robert Walker, represented Pennsylvania, and has been a leading expert on America's aerospace future. He chaired a commission for President Bush on the future of American aerospace. And I think you'll find both of these uh, gentlemen have some really good things to say. Now, one of the things that I hope that you'll do is to check out. This was an hour-long panel. There's both a YouTube video of it as well as a uh, transcript, a written transcript. And I'm just going to give you a few excerpts out of this. The, the part about COTS and cargo resupply and commercial spaceflight was a question that was asked. And Scott Pace answered, and he said, well... Just as a caution, he said he felt like the word commercial is badly misused. He said what we've got is a government buyer for a government mission to a government service. He said we're not at the point that we are with satellite communications. Satellite communications, you have private buyers and sellers providing services that are used around the world. He said the word commercial, he says it's really more private then we are at a point where we can call it fully commercial yet. Basically, the government is doing things for its own self-interest. And uh, that's what started me on this. Now, what I want to add to this is a couple other points, because, again, I'd like for you to check this out. Uh, Scott Pace mentioned a, you know, what is our future that humans will have beyond Earth? And I'm going to read that from a transcript of, of this presentation, just a short little bit. He said, there's a classic two-by-two two chart. He didn't come up with another one. A friend, colleague of his did. And there's two questions to answering. Is there a human future in space? Okay, so follow me with this. There's going to be each question here is going to break into two. One, can you live off the land or do you always have to come back to Earth? Two, is there anything useful you can do to pay your way? If the answer to both those questions is yes, you get space colonies. You get that science fiction vision. If the answer to both questions is no, then space is more like a form of Mount Everest. Somebody goes there, it's high adventure, it's symbolic, but nobody really lives there. Now, here we breaking it down further. If the answer is you can live off the land, but there's nothing really economically useful to do, then space is like Antarctica. You can do science, there's tourism, penguins, and it's a place for research with a mixture of activities. 
Now, this last option, if you can find something economically useful to do, but you have to come back to Earth, and you, and you can't separate yourself from the planet, then space is like an oil platform, something you go to and you service. And he said, these are four radically different human futures in space. I've got one other little part I would like to tease you with. And again, this was uh, Scott Pace talking. I didn't single him out, but a couple of things got my attention, and I can't take more than just a short time on this. He said that he worked at NASA after the Columbia accident. And he, he says that there was a very, very serious debate about stopping the space station assembly. There was not, it was not obvious that we would, they would return the shuttle to flight. And there were a lot of international modules and components that had been built and were in the process that were still on the ground. So he said that we approached other countries at the highest levels and asked, do you want to save the money and stop, or do you really want to keep going? And he said that at the most senior levels of the major partners, the answer was, we understand if you physically can't do it, but you have to try, okay? You cannot not try given those commitments otherwise future international cooperatives are going to be impossible so the shuttle was able to return to flight and uh, he says that he would submit the primary reason we returned the shuttle to flight was to meet the international partner partner commitments that had been made we put human life at risk for that to for the honor of those commitments he also mentioned from the uh, Columbia accident that one of the future goals of the Constellation program was to achieve the uh, safety factor where the probability of a loss of crew would be less than one in a thousand. He said the shuttle is on the order of one in a hundred. In other words, one flight in a hundred, you would likely have a loss of crew. And our future goal is to have a, a risk of an accident being one in a thousand. Now let's put that in comparison. He says that if you were in fighter planes on combat missions, you would have to fly many, many missions before you would expose yourself to the kind of probability a loss of crew that we have in space. So, again, check this out. I think you will find it an hour if you want to watch the video or if you want to go to the Council on Foreign Relations site and look for the future of U.S. space policy. You'll find a link to the transcript there. And uh, I think this is pretty good. But again, going back to my grouse about commercial, I think we're really not at the point where it's fully commercial. It's a little more private than it is commercial. And uh, I'm not criticizing what we're doing. I think it's a great, a great step, and I think it's a needful step at this time. Wow. Um, I know uh, uh, Bob Walker from he he was he was a frequent. Uh, uh, guest at a couple of the NSS conferences in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. He was so pro-space tourism back then, it was was, was ridiculous. Uh, Scott Pace, uh, again, he's now uh, at George Washington University, uh, had the same uh, chair that uh, uh, Dr. John Logsdon used to have over there, um, the Elliott School of, uh, I believe, uh, Science, Technology, and Public Policy. So, so Scott's been around as well, and I believe he's had some associate. I believe I'll have to check his bio, and Mark, you'll you'll have to check me too. I believe he he didn't just return to NASA. I believe he had a had a leadership uh, a role there too. 
So uh, these two guys are not slouches, and, and when these guys kind of talk, you, you want to go ahead and pause and listen. Um, you may not agree with them all the time, but um, they are, are, are definitely individuals uh, worth listening to. And Mark, that was a great find, and I would probably encourage folks to, uh, to watch that video if they, if, if they, can, if they have uh, an hour. But I believe it's uh, worth the investment and the time. So thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Yes, indeed. And of course, links to that will be in the show notes. All right, so that is the end of round one. And the final score of the end of round one is three stories down, six to go. All right, so let's get started on to the next one. And this is something that we talked about a while back. And this is an aircraft known as the X-51A, also known by its other name, the Wave Rider. The Wave Rider, we talked about it before, but not in a positive light. Last time we talked about it, it kind of crashed and burned and was destroyed. The newest flight kind of did the same thing. It, it flew and then was destroyed. The difference was, this time, intentionally after completing its mission. The last of the X-51A Wave Riders went hypersonic, achieving Mach 5.1 in its somewhat relatively short 372nd flight. It made it to about 60,000 feet using its scramjet engines, and it was actually successful. The only negative now at this point is there are none left because the others were destroyed, but this one was indeed successful. And I read that it was the uh, final flight of the program for this particular X-aircraft. Well, at this point, I would think so, because they have no more. So they're either going to have to build them again, or it was a successful test to see that they can get to Mach 5.1 and hold it there for about 370 seconds. Yeah, this has been a fun one for me, Sawyer. I'm glad you brought it up. And one of their goals was to prove the viability of air-breathing high-speed scramjet propulsion. And they've, they've done that. They've, they've hit their goals. I think that last flight had to be a thrill to the people who'd seen the last the previous two uh, not go well yeah you're not kidding because i mean the last one was last august and that one had a fin failure which caused it to crash about 13 seconds after so that's a huge improvement and again like you're saying with the scramjets that's i mean if those work that could be a very viable option and is it just me, or did anyone else get a little bit of a flashback to the X-1s and the X-15s going back to the early days of the X-programs? Good old-fashioned push in the envelope. I believe the, um, the project manager for this uh, gentleman by the name of Charles Brink basically said, um, with reference to the Wave Rider, I believe we've all, we, we've all learned um, uh, from the uh, X-51A, Wave Rider will serve as a bedrock for future hypersonic research and ultimately uh, the practical application of hypersonic flight. I believe that the uh, was about, uh, the project was about, what, $300 million, and this was uh, run, and somebody correct me on this, I think this was a DARPA project. And uh, I'm also thinking, too, Mark, of a of another uh, sort of hypersonic uh, scramjet that we kind of talked about that's under development now over in the U.K. And we talked to those folks uh, from Reaction Engines about that. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the technology, you know, for those type of engines is... Uh, is kind of uh, uh, you know leaping forward, and and hopefully this will 
this will be a precursor to to doing some really cool things, getting uh, hypersonic uh, aircraft up to the edge of space and letting a letting a small uh, uh, you know sort of mini shuttle take off from from the back of a hypersonic jet rather than uh, uh, having a uh, you know uh, chemical uh, rocket go ahead and take off. Good stuff here, real good stuff, and bravo to uh, everybody involved. Yes, indeed. And going back to what you're saying, it is the the engine is made by DARPA, is the Vulcan engine that they were testing. So it's cool. I'm glad that took them to the last one, but I'm glad that they finally got and tested the technology. And by the way, if you are interested in hearing that interview with Reaction Engine's Mark Hemsel, you can listen to episode 434, which is called Skylon with Saber, Single Stage to Orbit. Alrighty then. So next we move on to a story that'll leave some things in your lap and you're going to have to decide what to do with them. Well, maybe not you specifically, but NASA? Yeah, Sawyer. Uh, this happened, oh, I believe last year sometime. Uh, the National Reconnaissance Office came over to uh, to NASA and said, well, hey, guys, uh, we've got these two telescopes, kind of sort of these two satellites sitting over here that were supposed to be, uh, you know, kind of sort of eyes in the sky for us. And, uh, well, the, the project was canceled um, back in uh, 2005. We really don't have any use for them. Uh, you think you can find uh, a use for these guys? And uh, NASA just said, um, let us think about that for a moment. Yes. Uh, so they took the two uh, the two telescopes. Now uh, these are nothing more. And and the article I'm looking at here from the Huffington Post, uh, written by Mike Wall, actually for Space.com, uh, basically says that that these these articles are are uh, not really fully outfitted spacecraft yet. They're more like uh, you know these trusses with uh, their primary and secondary mirrors in them. Uh, there aren't any instruments in them just yet. But um, the idea is, what do we do with these things? Well, there was a symposium not too long ago that, well, scientists were asked to go ahead and submit things. You know, what do you want to do with these things? And there were, you know, hundreds of proposals. Um, they've narrowed them down to kind of sort of 60 of these things. And... Um, the the winners so far are and uh, they they list the the seven categories that uh, these these proposals fit under is uh one a mars orbiting telescope uh two an exoplanet observatory to try to go ahead and and sort of take the kepler mission to the to the next level um kepler itself is having some flywheel issues itself self so you know they're 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 trying to figure out now what do you do when when that flywheel fails so so this could theoretically sort of augment what uh, what Kepler is doing. Um, one of the other uh, uh, things that mentions um, an advanced uh, Hubble-like visible light ultraviolet telescope, basically the Hubble Space Telescope Mark II, uh, once Hubble reenters. Um, another one is a general-purpose faint object explorer and other possibility and this again goes hand in hand with some of the other topics we've discussed tonight um, an optical communications node uh, where it would aid transmissions to and from deep space assets so again I'm kind of wondering if we do 
leverage these telescopes at once some point we go down that path um, can these can this telescope aid us in a trip out to Mars well possibly uh, as uh, dr. John, John Grunsfeld had said uh, the planetary um, exploration division and the human exploration division are kind of sort of working in tandem uh, to achieve you know joint goals so um, there's a possibility there another um, another other possibility that was mentioned, and Mark, uh, you were saying as far as low Earth orbit was concerned, uh, a geospace dynamic observatory, which would uh, go ahead and, and try to understand space weather and uh, the Earth-Sun system. And um, uh, the last but not least, uh, the research of the Earth's upper atmosphere from a spot on board the on, from a spot on board the ISS. So these were the, the, the ones that they were trying to, to go ahead and, uh, and figure out what they're going to do with. Right now, again, NASA doesn't have the budget to do anything with them just yet. We could go ahead and work on what we want to do, but um, with the austere budget that we have right now, and we're trying to go ahead and you know, fully fund commercial crew and, and commercial cargo, and we're trying to make sure the other portfolio... Uh, for instance, the planetary science program doesn't take any more of a hit than it already has. I, I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do with these guys. I'm going to sum it up in just a couple of words. In fact, I'll narrow it down to five. Any science is good science. Personally, I think any of these would be great opportunities. I mean, why not? It, literally, it, it, you've got so many different possibilities. It's honestly just a matter of narrowing it down to which one or, like you said, if there's anything else, getting a better proposal. So I can't say for certain that, yes, one of these ideas sounds great or no, another one would be better because, honestly, I think anything would be good. Plus, it's it's almost free science. You know, when it comes to budget constraints at the moment, building a telescope is an expensive one. So if the telescope is pretty much already there for you, well, then... That takes out a lot of the price. Well, keep in mind there, Sawyer, again, we're not talking about a fully outfitted, fully instrumented uh, telescope. It's not like we have with pick 4 in there or anything like that. But nonetheless, um, that's still that's still less than you would have to pay originally. Yeah, because you, you, you still have the optics, and that's probably, as any astronomer, I guess, would tell you, that's probably one of the most expensive parts of the scope. You know, I wouldn't exactly say it's free, but there is going to be a cost involved, but it, the cost would be, you're right, the cost would be less than uh, uh, what it would, would, would cost otherwise if you would have to go ahead and grind your own mirrors. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see and watch and, and see what happens with this. But it's going to be, you're, you're, you're right, sir, it's going to be kind of exciting to see what, uh, what direction both of these scopes take. Yes, indeed, we'll have to keep an eye on what they end up going towards. All right, so now we're going to move on to a spacecraft that I think most people have kind of forgotten about after its one lone flight. Mark? Yeah, I'd like to tell you about something that uh, is kind of a surprise to see this, but uh, we all remember the excitement of the first launch of the Constellation program, which was the Ares 1X, and uh, the controversy that surrounded it coming up to launch as to whether it would fly smoothly or whether there would be some problems with it uh, related to vibration and setting up resonances and they referred to it I think as pogoing. 
Well, here's something, and this is from Aviation Week Space Technology writer Frank Mooring Jr., uh, where he talks about NASA technology stabilizing structures. So let me tell you a little bit about it. From the defunct ARIES program, as one of the systems that was developed to steady the rocket and minimize those, those vibrations, they came up with some systems that NASA afterwards continued developing they put about $5 million into refining this technique, and they call it fluid structure coupling. They haven't revealed the details about this because of potential military potential that, that grows from it. But now they've expanded their early analysis and experimental work, and they've come up with some potential applications, including stabilizing nuclear power plants, tall buildings and earthquakes and violent storms, ships and drilling platforms and rough seas, and fuel-filled aircraft wings in turbulent flight conditions. And Rob Berry, their chief technologist and manager of this fluid structure coupling program at Marshall Space Flight Center, said that we're saying anywhere that fluid and structures coexist, you can control the coupling question is, can you control enough fluid and enough coupling to make it worthwhile? Now, this came, again, from the Ares 1X, and the what they did was they used the liquid oxygen tank and the liquid oxygen propellant in the tank to minimize these vibrations. Using the weight of the liquid oxygen in the tank, they built a system that gave this relatively heavy cryogenic liquid another place to go. Instead of transmitting vibrations upward from the solid fuel first stage, think of the bottom of the tank moving up and down, and the fluid has to go along for the ride. If you put a compressible degree of freedom, a bubble, think of a balloon in the tank, when it compresses, the fluid moves towards it. When it expands, the fluid moves away from it. Now they have a large percentage of the fluid, which they use to control the dynamics of this oscillation. And... This is something that they've developed using essentially surplus hardware scrounged around from the boneyards at Marshall. They used a, a Apollo vintage uh, propulsion center, a 40-story vehicle dynamics test facility that was built for the Saturn moon rocket to demonstrate just how little fluid is needed to stabilize a tall building. So they've done some really cool stuff. They got a picture in the article of a uh, off-the-shelf green plastic pipe holding 13,000 pounds of water that has this fluid structure coupling device inside. And as long as the system is engaged at the top of a 4.5 million pound structure, the oscillating weights barely move the building. But when the valve is switched the other way, isolating the device, water in a nearby trans in a uh, transparent tank begins sloshing dramatically as the building sways perceptively. Anyway, one of those neat things from the Ares program, and I want to mention another one, and th it, this again came out of my first series of comments from this uh, Council on Foreign Relations Future U.S. Space Policy, and they mentioned that one of the advantages of the Ares 1X test flight was the engineers. There was no new physics that were done with the Ares 1X test flight there was basically they took something that was known and should have worked but what they learned out of it was who the real engineers were who could make the equipment sing and 
maybe who's the person that you'd use to make view graphs for the next status report. So they took a lot of in-house expertise and found out who the engineers were that could make it really work and make a success out of it. So another advantage from that program that didn't seem to go anywhere that here we are today with a little continuing development and investment has brought something that's uh, opened the eyes of some engineers and designers dealing with far different devices and structures. It goes to show, Mark, again, the, uh, I believe uh, even the, the Augustine Commission said itself uh, that um, do we launch Ares 1X or not? And they said, yeah, of course we do. We don't know what we're going to learn from it. So uh, we should go ahead and, uh, and uh, do that. Uh, it's always good to go ahead and, and, and do research programs and, and, uh, and see what, uh, what this, what this uh, uh, could, could help us with. And obviously uh, there was still a treasure trove of data that uh, Aries 1X had left that could go ahead and help us in so many other ways. So uh, um, Again, uh, it goes to show uh, that the, the final launch uh, from the old uh, uh, shuttle pad on uh, pad 39B did not go to waste, and uh, that some really good information, really good data uh, that could help in other other areas, uh, really really paid off. So uh, again, great find. All right, so we are now on to our final round, round number three. And I guess we will start things off with me. How convenient. Didn't even expect that to rhyme. All right. <laughs> I'm going to, oh, I'm just going to look for something to throw, but go ahead. <laughs> well, it's been a while since you said that. I must be doing pretty good. Wanted to mention a couple of quick videos that I've seen online recently. And a couple of them have been, as we talked about once before, from the Canadian Space Agency, which they've been posting some videos from Commander Chris Hadfield aboard the International Space Station. And he has been doing some amazingly great videos again. We talked about some of his previous ones, but some of the ones he's been doing this time have been about tears in space and do they fall or don't they fall? Sleeping in space, which a bunch of us probably know about, getting sick, recycling water to gross out the kids, and even controlling the International Space Station. Those are pretty fun. And on top of that, not just the Canadian Space Agency, but NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center has been getting in on the YouTube hits as well. Because it's not just the Canadian Space Agency that's making it on the featured videos page with over 100,000 views each time. Some of those include the channel NASA Explorer, which one of theirs was about a close call between Fermi and a defunct Soviet satellite and how they avoided each other. And that video has over 100,000 views and one with over 2 million views is three years of the sun and three minutes, as taken by pictures from NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory, or SDO. So those are all videos that you may want to check out. So in the show notes will be linked to the Canadian Space Agency's YouTube channel, as well as NASA Goddard. Hats off to the Fermi team for, for seeing that and changing Fermi's orbit. Yes, indeed. Congrats to SDO as well for their great work. And congrats to Canadian Space Agency astronaut Chris Hadfield for just being awesome on the Internet. Yeah, he rocks. I mean, he's been doing more. I mean, a lot of the astronauts have been doing a lot of good stuff up there as far as getting public attention. But Chris Hadfield, wow. I mean, he's really done a grand job at, uh, at uh, getting public attention to that. So hats off to you. Alrighty then. So on to the next one, which, um, hey, you want to buy a bridge? 
I think this guy's selling something that's even worse than a bridge. Gene? Yeah, I have to first, but I have to thank a, uh, a listener, uh, Jill Powell. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, P A L L. Uh, she goes by Jillapalooza on Twitter. Uh, she's also a listener to the program, and she brought this uh, rather interesting article to my attention. Uh, this is a um, uh, about a gentleman by the name of Dennis Hope, who is a former ventriloquist, and I actually said that I'm impressed. Um, turned entrepreneur, and uh, his uh, he, he's he's a real estate agent of sorts. His uh, property and what he sells, parcels of the moon and Mars. For about 20 bucks, you can go ahead and buy about an acre of land on the moon. And I believe it's $25 U.S. for an acre of land on Mars. Um, he uh, and I believe a few of his clients are, are you know, some former presidents in this as well. Uh, there's this pesky little problem, though. It's called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 that uh, expressly forbids the, uh, uh, that no one entity could go ahead and own it. And I've, I've taken the liberty of pulling that treaty up on the, uh, on the Internet uh, through the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs website here. And uh, it basically says that you know one of the points is uh, outer space exploration shall be free uh, to all to all um, that uh, outer space is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty by means of or use or occupation or by any other means there is the uh, the clause there now Mr. Hope's idea is saying, well, that pertains to nations, not people. And so he's trying to kind of squirm under that little loophole there and think that this is the, these, these land uh, claims are going to hold up in court. Well, I mean, no think so. Uh, and a lot of legal experts don't think so either. But I think this is just essentially the... Uh, the pet rock of the 21st century. Uh, there's another group out there that's sort of um, naming stars after people. Of course, the uh, International Astro Astronomical Union, the IAU, doesn't really recognize that. The thing is that th those folks, I believe, say that in their uh, their in their paraphernalia that they hand out to buyers. So. Uh, I think they're off the hook, and they kind of know that they're just buying sort of a pet rock type thing. That they're they're just naming, uh, they're naming stars just for you know for the heck of it. Uh, and I think this is going to go the same way. I don't think Mr. Hope is going to like to stand on legally. But uh, if you look at his website too, Sawyer again, he's he's a little bit well out there. In fact, he's basically saved plots of land for embassies of every nation. And I believe the website says somewhere over there that um, for embassies of other planets, right? Or something along those lines. I was like, what the heck? So this guy really, really has lost any kind of credibility in my mind. So what do you guys think? Well, uh, I was actually in a doctor's office and happened to see that they had the Steve Harvey show on, and there was this guy said he was trying to sell the moon. I 
felt terrible because I couldn't stop laughing in the doctor's office, and I think that they might have thought I had a laughing problem rather than the other reason I was there. But I was watching this and just hearing him talk about it and how much land he's already sold. How many acres? And I'm like, oh my, are you kidding me? I mean, I understand what he's doing, and it, it's a great money-making scam, but I, uh, like you said, I don't know legally how he can get away with this. I don't think that loophole's going to hold, but I couldn't stop laughing. I can't take this seriously. And, I mean, besides the fact that that's incredibly cheap, and he's had people spend six digits worth of money on plots of land on the moon, yeah, but what's going to happen if... Let's say another country like China or someone else goes back to the moon, or even us, the U.S., we go back, and we land on somebody's house. <laughs> well, I believe, too, I, I, I think, um, I, I think you see, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember where I read this, and, and somebody out there has probably seen it, where the Russians are already kind of sort of planning where to, to land there. They're, I believe somebody's planning to land a lunar rover somewhere, and... Um, uh, he's already said, well, you're going to have to ask permission here. And like, yeah, like that's going to hold up. I mean, the guy is sold, and I, at last check, $9 million worth of this stuff. Um, not bad, considering it doesn't, you know, it's you're selling paper. Uh, if, it, if it promotes interest in astronomy and interested in, in, in geology and lunar science, okay, fine, I guess. But don't really think you own anything. You own a nice little piece of paper and any type of paraphernalia that you get, but you're not owning really a piece of another world, guys. Just stop. Please. I'm begging you. Um, I'd really love to hear any type of uh, uh, stuff that you guys think uh, as, far as, the, as far as this is concerned. I, I still think this is the pet rock of the 21st century. And... Uh, and it will. Uh, will I, I'm just wondering what everybody else thinks about about this out there. You know, it's a clever idea. I gotta say, it's a brilliant way to try and make money. But uh, yeah, that's all I can say. <laughs> Ditto. Alrighty then. So we're gonna finish things off on a little bit of a happier note and an actual real award, not a fake award of land for Mark. Real. This is the real deal now. I'm not just kidding you. Uh, back in 2010, got to talk to a NASA astronaut at the time, the Johnson Space Center director, astronaut Michael Coates. Uh, just a bit about him. He started his career as an astronaut candidate in January of 78, and he retired as the JSC director in December 2012. And recently, he was given a, an award by the Federal Labor Consortium, and they gave him recognition as the 2012 Laboratory Director of the Year. Now, of course, the Johnson Space Center and the many functions that happen there have done some things that perhaps we've forgotten about, and some of the activities that have taken place at Johnson Space Center during uh, Michael Coates' uh, directorship for instance, remember the Chilean miners that were uh, rescued from far underground in a mine? And the Johnson Space Center sent a medical team to help with the rescue efforts. Also, there was a partnership between Johnson Space Center and GM to develop a robotic glove to alleviate repetitive stress industries. And one of the things that totally surprised me is that a JSC 
solar-powered, batteryless refrigerator has been developed. They've licensed technology to Sundancer Refrigeration, and they've, in cooperation with the World Health Organization, have developed this battery C solar refrigeration system to enable storage of vaccines in remote areas without electricity. And there were many, many, many things that have taken place at Johnson Space Center, but Michael Coates was a, a key player in this. Uh, more recently, I remember we've talked about the fact that the neutral buoyancy lab was going to be cross-utilized for water safety and survival training for offshore oil and gas workers. And that was something that was quite a surprise to think of, what can you use that facility for? Well, you train astronauts to simulate you know, a, a microgravity environment for spacewalks. Well, you can also use it for oil and gas industry workers. And that's one of the things that NASA had to, had to come up with some ideas. How can we continue to utilize our facilities and get some income to pay for their upkeep? And again, this 2012 Laboratory Director of the Year, Mike Coates, congratulations. And uh, it doesn't surprise me when you think about the, the integrity and the quality of these people, especially Mr. Coates. Here, here. Um, I still remember uh, Gina's inter- uh, Gina Hurley's interview with him uh, a while. You know, this was, uh, oh, good Lord, this was at uh, uh, SDS-133, the final flight of Discovery. And uh, uh, Mike Coates was the, the pilot of, that, of, the, uh, of the first mission of Discovery. And uh, he was sort of reflecting back, and he, you know, you could tell how passionate he was, or is really, about uh, human spaceflight, and how he really, really wants to keep the fire burning. Uh, and uh, it, it, you know, the the accolades are, are really well deserved. So, bravo, sir. Yes, indeed. Congratulations are definitely in order. And with that, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Not done yet. Got one more thing. Uh, Lance, uh, Landside 8 NASA tweet-up is going to happen on May 30th, 2013. I uh, believe the registration is open until May 10th at noon Eastern Standard, uh, or Eastern Daylight, I'm sorry. So if uh, folks are interested, go to nasa.gov. There's a link up on that site but uh again sign up i really really urge you to do that do this if you've never been to a, a nasa social used to be called nasa tweet ups do it this one is focusing on landsat 8 and the uh nasa throwing the keys to uh usgs and uh learning more about uh, earth resources so if you haven't gone ahead and and gone to a nasa social do it this is really encourage you to try to sign up go for it yes indeed and thank you all for joining us, Mark Ratterman. And don't forget, folks, if you haven't supported Astronaut Abby and her Soyuz adventure coming up and the future outreach that she'll be doing, and it has been doing already, in fact, go to rockethub.com and search for Astronaut Abby and um, give her a few bucks for something that's really going to benefit a lot, of, a lot of young people for the next, uh, probably the rest of this year, I think. Yes, indeed. And since everybody else has something to add, I will add something in as well. And that is that we thank you for joining us, and we hope that you will join us next week, because we promise that as long as technology permits us, we will be back next week. Until then, though, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm
Thank you.